Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history theme season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. This is existentialism. Okay, so Allison read from Ecclesiastes. Uh, chapter one, right at the very beginning, to indicate that there really isn't anything new under the sun, um, which is proven by the fact that eventually, after all the times that we have discussed on this uh, podcast uh, in this season, we're right back basically to a feeling at the end like everything is vain. Mm -hmm. They finally come to the same conclusion Solomon came to, uh, but unlike Solomon, they did not turn in submission and repentance, uh, or at least they haven't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the despair, the hopelessness, and the grinding down almost to nothing of uh, of the art movement um, during the time of existentialism. And so what, what time do you think that would be age-wise, like really 1940s through... Really early 1900s, it sort of overlaps the late modern period. Well, doesn't it start, I mean, I feel like that philosophical movement starts after the war. Yeah, probably so. makes Makes sense. sense. Because everybody just died off and... Yeah, and they're feeling like... um, What's the point of any of this? Yes, we just fought over all this stuff, but what are we even fighting over? Right. So existentialism is such a big philosophical thing. So maybe, I think we should dive into the more specific details, but maybe from a foundational sense, can you give like a generic understanding of what existentialism means? Sure. Or just a basic definition? Yeah. 
So I don't know about a basic definition, but uh, <laughs> I'll explain it a little bit. So we talked about it in a previous episode uh, about Kant and the idea of um, an external truth being outside of our subjective experience. But there was still a confidence there was an external truth, even in Kant. The idea of, of the noumenal or whatever, that, that which is outside of your perception, he still believed was real. And so you can take that all the way back to Plato, where the idea of the ideal forms, they're beyond our perception, but they're actually the most real. And they're the things from which everything gains reality. You can see that working out in the arts, especially with representational art, where uh, one of our commenters, uh, Jay Frutral, even mentioned this. It was a really insightful comment. The, the idea that uh, the repetition of particular art um, uh, processes was a repeated attempt at finding that ideal. Hmm. Can I draw the perfect apple? Can I capture the essence of appleness? Mm -hmm. And that is great. Yeah. And so you you do that over years and years and years and years and years. And in some ways, that's that's the art process all the way up until existentialism. At which point, what you feel is not just a radical subjectivism, but also a growing despair in the possibility that external truths are even existent. So it's not even a, we can't find them because of our subjectivism and because of our finiteness, but actually they don't exist. And um, one of the most famous, uh, well, he technically he considered himself an absurdist, but he's in the realm of existential uh, philosophy. And he, was a, a, he also wrote literature. Um, he wrote a famous novel called The Stranger. His name is Albert Camus. And he wrote a really fine piece that I recommend um, even though I don't agree with his conclusions, I think that he does say some really insightful things in um, his piece, The Myth of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus, for the absurdists and the existentialists, was the perfect myth um, because it was the continual rebellion against the futility of existence. Because mm-hmm. um, Sisyphus was this dude who was really, really clever. He was too c- clever for the gods, and the gods hated him. And he tricked them a bunch of times. Like he even tricked them into uh, he, he tricked them into letting him live for a little longer because he complained that his wife uh, had not been mourning him properly, but he had commanded her not to mourn him properly after mm. he died. And so they allowed him to come back from the underworld in order to scold her because it was really important to the gods ah, that like yes. you know <laughs> that these certain things be, be be taken care of. And so rather than going and talking to his wife, he just hung out on the beach and and just tried to enjoy as much more extra life as he could. And they were so kind upset of with him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> just, just waiting for the gods to show up to <laughs> drag him back to the underworld. And so Sisyphus was punished by the gods uh, with this interminable task of rolling a stone up a hill. And every time he would get it nearly to the top, the stone would roll back down. And he he was given a compulsion to continue pushing the stone up the hill, to roll it up the hill, even though it, he he must have been certain that it was going to fall back down, but he had this compulsion. He, that, that, hmm. was, that was his punishment for the rest of eternity to mm-hmm. do this uh, interminable and futile task. Um, so this myth of Sisyphus becomes a an image for Albert Camus of the futility of human existence. He says, this is not hell, this is life. This is not, <laughs> that's not, you know, we, we do this all the time. And mm-hmm. Solomon, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind. There's that same kind of idea that in human terms under the sun, 
there, there's this understanding that there isn't a meaning that I can apply to it. The existentialist would still say, you must apply a meaning anyway, because otherwise the only other option is suicide, mm. which even Camus, the, the, the whole piece of Myth of Sisyphus is about why you shouldn't commit suicide even though everything is meaningless. Mm. He's trying to come up with a reason for life in spite of the fact that he has totally capitulated to the meaninglessness mm. of existence. Fascinating. Yeah. And so uh, that had a massive impact um, on the arts, especially to, well, up until this point, people were looking to artists and saying, you tell us what the higher meaning is. Mm -hmm. Like point us to something that's transcendent. And if you've lost out entirely on any hope that there is anything transcendent, then you've also given up as a, as a figure of truth. Yeah. As, and and the and really once the artist had said that, once the artist had said there's no meaning, it's all absurd, everything is is just striving after the wind anyway, so why even bother? And all and their art became so much more about that, about meaninglessness and futility. They I think they lost their audience to a large extent. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, we can see it's a lot easier to see the existentialism working out yeah. in literature yeah. and philosophy. But you actually have a visual artist yeah. that you think also represents this, uh, this idea. Yeah. Well, I think to your point about losing the audience, uh, it makes sense because for most of history, art was used to bring people to a higher state, you know, like a an existential state, a philosophical, you know, just that there's something more than what I'm experiencing in reality. And even art as a means of just escaping from reality, you know, it was people turned to art for something. For something more. For something more. Yeah. And, and now there's nothing. Like, now artists are showing you there's really nothing more. Mm -hmm. um, and... The artist I'm going to talk about, I think, captures that well, that, you know, kind of this melancholic, you know, everything's wasting away and there is something. Um, and his name is Alberto Giacometti. Most people have not heard of him, I'm sure. But he created this sculpture um, called The Walking Man in 1960, and he's a Swiss sculptor and painter. And this is right after the Second World War, and it's, again, this whole movement of just, like, everything's a waste. You know, everyone's dead. What are we living for? What's the point? We're all just going to die. I th to me, my understanding of existentialism is this. It, not only is there this, like, individualistic mentality and freedom and autonomy, but there's also this constant reminder of the fate of humanity and you're just going to die. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think Giacometti kind of captures more of that, the latter part of the, that mindset for the existentialist. And he creates a sculpture. He actually started as a surrealist artist, moved to existentialist in light of just the philosoph philosophical movement happening after the war. And Walking Man is this very tall, slender sculpture um, of this man who probably is naked. You can't really tell. Um, but you know, it's, it's very like wrinkled, heavy looking skin. He's incredibly frail. Like he looks like he's malnourished and hasn't been fed in 
months, um, super long legs, very elongated, and his feet are huge compared to the rest of his body. And um, from my study of Giacometti, he was his point in that was just to say that this is the weight that people are carrying with them. They're so malnourished. There's nothing left inside of them, and they're ca- constantly carrying this heavy burden, this weight that they can't get rid of. But he's in a walking position. And so there's this also realization that he's moving towards something. You know, he his head's he's not like bowed down in sorrow or, you know, I have nothing to hope in. He's looking forward and he's moving his feet as if he is going to something. Um, and though, you know, it's as if though I'm in this current state and though my feet are burdened with all of this weight and I'm weary and there's, I feel like I have nothing left, I'm going to take that step forward. And I think that really captures the existential mindset, which is kind of what you're just talking about, that there has to, we have to find meaning if it's not going to be in what we've been putting it in. Um, and, you know, if, if it's not in God, then we got to find something else. Something else worthy of living for. Right. And so uh, I think this sculpture, and, and I would encourage y'all to look it up. I really love it. It's one of my favorite sculptures. But um, he really does capture this whole f- philosophical movement in one one piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, you know, th- that's the beauty of visual arts, that you can capture words visually without saying anything almost, but it's saying a thousand things, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, look him up. He's really, it's a great piece. And uh, I think as we talk about this, if you can look it up while you're listening, I think it'll help you kind of keep along yeah. with kind of what we're talking about. Although if you're driving, just don't yeah, do don't that. do that. Don't do that. Because <laughs> then your, uh, your inevitable death will probably come hands a free, lot hands sooner. Hands-free, <laughs> um, Yeah, and there, we can talk also about uh, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, yeah. Who has a similar mm-hmm. uh, approach in Old Man in the Sea, where Santiago, the main character, fisherman, uh, goes out on the ocean. He catches a very big fish, but uh, he's not able to keep the fish. Um, what ends up happening is that sharks come after he's caught the fish, and he's struggled to catch this monumental fish, and it's this wonderful, beautiful mm-hmm. fish. And uh, he's, he lashes it to the side of his boat, and the sharks just take pieces of it away till it's gone. By the time he gets back into the shore, this this wonderful fish that he had worked so hard and like struggled for days and days and days uh, to reel it in. And then uh, it's just gone and there's just bones. And uh, it, it ends with these, um, you know, ignorant people mm-hmm. eating at a restaurant, looking down, seeing the carcass of the fish washed up and, and saying that they thought it's a shark. They're like, I think it's a shark. Anyway, the idea being like there's just ignorance, There's there, people don't understand what you've gone through, and um, Santiago goes to his place and stretches out, uh, you know, spread eagle on his bed, exhausted from this entire thing. And there's some Christian imagery in it in terms of Santiago as his own salvation. Um, but really it's, is there objective meaning in his life or in his struggle for survival. And Hemingway is basically saying, no, there's not. But could he could he do other than try to live anyway, try mm-hmm. to survive anyway? No, because all he has is existence. That's all that he has, uh, hence existentialism. Um, and so you can see that in a lot of the, the, the books, a lot of the, even the movies that are happening around this time. Um, 
you see this with like Clockwork Orange and um, you know other other stories where it just there's struggle and there is this arc of tension and overcoming tension, but there's no hope in the resolution mm-hmm. because the resolution is basically well you struggled and you survived to live another day, but for what reason? For what purpose? Mm-hmm. No purpose outside what you gave it. No point outside what you gave it. And um, you can just you can see how such such writing and such art um, would turn people off, which it does and it has. But also, I think the stripping back of those uh, of those layers of human meaning. I mean, think about it. We we've talked about it. It's very important to know. This is actually a good thing in one sense Mm -hmm. that um, if human beings say we can find meaning for ourselves, we're able to, through reason or through experience, come to truth, come to a truth of ourselves, then um, that's bad. That's bad for the gospel Mm -hmm. because the gospel says actually, no, you can't. You, you don't have anything to offer of meaning intrinsically to your own existence or to your own works. That if there is a meaning in this world, it's one that God applies to it. And truly, if God does not exist, then the world truly is meaningless to, mm-hmm. to, uh, down to the very foundations of it. They've finally gotten to this conclusion. They're not taking that next step, which is, we have given up on finding a meaning for ourselves. And you see this with existentialism and postmodernism. It's like, okay, so if you can't find meaning or truth through reason and you can't find it through experience, well, then there isn't any. There's none to find, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what Camus says, basically. There might be. I don't know whether there is one. But since I can't find it in merely human terms, I refuse it. Hmm. And... Uh, we have to encourage, really, we need to encourage people, no, don't, 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 don't refuse it. Don't refuse the meaning that's beyond your existence. And at the same time, I, don't, I, I think that Christians have been, and I don't want to throw all of us under the bus, but I feel like we've resisted the, the true parts of postmodernism and existentialism because we already found the hope and the answer. Mm. You know, it's like, but yeah, but they haven't yet. And in some ways, this despair and hopelessness that they feel is a place they need to be before they can receive the hope of the gospel. I think that is a part of just being a Christian. At some, I think at some point, every Christian's going to come to this place of whether it's from severe suffering, doubt, you know, total faith crisis, you're going to start to ask those questions. And and that's the irony of even this movement is that it's not even new under the sun. Mm-mm. Solomon is talking about it in Ecclesiastes. And so it's always been there. People mm-hmm. have always asked these questions like, what is the point? What's the purpose? You know, and even the things people tell us that do give us meaning or hope or even doing all of the right things doesn't mean your life's going to work out the way you thought it would. It doesn't it doesn't guarantee anything. Mm-mm. Nothing is guaranteed. And so I think I think that is a reality of just the human experience of existing. You're going to come to this point of is everything vanity? Mm-hmm. You know, it is what I believe really what I believe, like what I say I have is meaningful to me and 
gives me my life meaning? Does it really? Um, and I actually think that's healthy. It's healthy to ask those questions. It's healthy to wrestle through that because if you never do, it's probably not a very secure foundation. No. Um, if you're never challenged, if you never ask yourself those hard questions, or no one does, and, and your foundation isn't rocked somewhat, uh, I don't I don't know that you can have a super solid foundation. And uh, and as believers, we know that we have there is meaning to our lives because God has given it. And it's totally normal because we are fallen humans to question that Mm -hmm. and to wrestle through that. And I think that's a healthy believer. I think that's a healthy walk. If you continue in the wrestling and you continue in that, in that work of questioning. And um, so I think, you know, the whole movement is just a movement of humanity always. I don't think that's, I don't think this movement has gone away. I think it's always going to be, um, an underlying philosophical part of life. No, agreed. And actually, I'm really thankful for it mm-hmm. because you look back at the classical era and on, and even though there there are all sorts of attempts, all sorts of approaches to try and find meaning, everybody thinks that they can find it on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Like, however you define it, you know, however you organize it. That pretty much every movement up to existentialism and postmodernism thinks that there is a meaning that can be found on merely human terms. They're confident of this. And I don't know if this is a, a, a worldwide human thing. You know, Solomon was pretty ahead of his time mm-hmm. in what he's saying. And even a lot of Christians reading Ecclesiastes have a very hard time receiving what he's saying because it just seems so despairing and so mm-hmm. dismal. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, is there truly no hope in human experience, existence, and endeavor? And, and Solomon's kind of like, no, there's <laughs> not. Like, all the way down to the bottom, there's not. And, uh, and I should know. I'm the wisest man in the world. Oh, you think pleasure is going to give you fulfillment? I, I've had more pleasures than you can possibly imagine. I mean, you just look at his yeah. list. You yeah. know? Um, didn't last. Didn't last. And it wasn't fulfilling. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, 700 wives or whatever, 300 concubines or switch that. But, yeah. you know, whichever, uh, whichever it was, but a thousand <laughs> women and, and, and yet every new wife was not satisfying to him, you know, didn't, didn't fulfill the need that he had. Um, how much food did he eat? How, mm-hmm. I mean, how, like his wealth is enormous. It, it, it says that silver was worthless in Jerusalem during his reign because it was so common. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, dude, that is excessive. Mm-hmm. That is like excess beyond anything we can imagine. He's, he wasn't satisfied. Mm-hmm. At the edge of all of that, he wasn't satisfied. And wisdom, I mean, who had more wisdom than he did? Like, and he couldn't find it in this world. And even says at the end of the book, which is a really important thing, you know, you got to get to the end. Uh, in the end, after mm-hmm. everything has been said, fear God yeah. and obey his commandments because this applies to every person. Yeah. And that, that movement toward faith and obedience, that does apply to every person. Mm-hmm. Now, Camus and Hemingway and I imagine who's, who's our friend of them, Giacometti. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. It's fine. <laughs> Allison does it. I was like, I want to talk about it. We have to expose anyway. you to more artists. <laughs> I, I, you have to expose me to more artists. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, all these guys, they weren't willing to take a route toward, toward faith. And, you know, we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, is there, through sight, any confidence in truth and meaning and fulfillment mm-hmm. and satisfaction? And the reality is, 
No, there isn't. That if that according to sight, according to evidence, according to reason, the conclusion that has been come to after two thousand years or whatever of this pendulum swing mm-hmm. is that there's nothing. There there is no hope of finding any fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, meaning, or truth through human on human terms, on merely human terms. Mm-hmm. That's important. Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's really important. So, um, question. Yes. Uh, how does this apply to an artist? Do you think, like, who's create who is creating art now? How can they take an awareness of this philosophical movement that really is still a thing? Mm-hmm. It hasn't gone away. Uh, especially, you know, as we've looked at modern art and moving into postmodernism and mm-hmm. contemporary art today. I mean. What do you think is a good takeaway, especially for a Christian artist uh, who does like find meaning mm-hmm. in the Lord? Well, I think for one, you have to express that meaning mm-hmm. and you have to learn ways to express it. It is unbelievable, actually. The resurrection is unbelievable. Um, we believe it. Right. But just in human terms, it's, it's totally outside of any experience or any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, that we've ever had, it doesn't make sense. Like something dies, it doesn't come back to life. But but we've seen it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is you have seen it. You have things. You have seen things come back to mm-hmm. life uh, in your own life and in the lives of others. You've seen dead people start living like living people. And if that's the case, how do we express that according to how we've seen it? Like we're witnesses of this. So how do we express that to people as witnesses of those things? I think that artists have to do that. I also think that it's very important not to fall into trite solutions. Hmm. You know, when when I first began learning about postmodernism, I was told, you know, there are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute? You know, like that's the response that people give. And it might be a fine response in one sense, but it's not very pastoral. Because most people who are struggling through these things, they're not looking for trite answers. Um, they, they, they reject them. That's mm-hmm. the whole point. Is they're like, sure, yeah, sure, it's an absolute, or it's not. What does it matter? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, does, I, and, I feel like a lot of I feel like people in this, someone who's in this state mentally or just in their heart, more than anything, needs to know that they're not alone in it. Because if everything feels meaningless, oh, and I'm isolated mm-hmm. and I have no one, mm-hmm. then literally nothing's. It's hard. There's no meaning. Hence the, just you know, find meaning somewhere else other than you know committing suicide. Right. Don't do that. Yeah. That's and, all that Camus right. can really say is like just thumb your nose at right. the futility of your existence and live. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> you know? so I think that's you know on the light of the past, like that's not pastoral. It's, Come alongside him. Right. Yeah. And. The other thing I would say, and I think this is really important, we're going to get into this in the next episode. Um, one of the movements that has occurred because of the hopelessness and the, the despair that people have felt is if intrinsically and fundamentally my life is meaningless, then what's the point of living? Well, pleasure. Mm. So, like, entertain me. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to be entertained, to be distracted until I die. Um, and you can see that right now. Uh, you can see that. And one of the artist's jobs, I think, 
is to, through an appeal, right? Right. So the problem with existentialist art, and to a large extent, is it totally negates the audience. It just rejects the audience. It's like, what you think is not important. This is just self-expression because self-expression is all I have. Mm -hmm. So there's no sense of trying to draw into a community. Artists need to avoid that, obviously, and and, and actually draw people into a a communal experience with them uh, and communicate something that they have known. But they also need to make sure that they are not allowing people um, to just skate over the way things actually are. Like, just to be entertained, you know, they, they need to yeah. draw people out, kind of shake them up a little bit and, and, and say, hey, can we just pause for a moment and contemplate and consider? And that, that has been the place of art for a long period of time. And we're going to see in the next episode how that purpose of art to draw people back into a slow and meditative state concerning reality was lost, Hmm. at least in Western society, and continues to sort of be lost. That the only people who are taking note of serious art are like critics, art critics and and art snobs and all these kinds of people. But the the quote-unquote masses, they are not really interested in your arty-farty movie or your sculptures or your painting or your gallery. Mm -hmm. I mean, occasionally, maybe they'll go to one of those things for a little, quote, culture. Mm -hmm. But there's this huge divide now um, between serious art and art for entertainment's sake. And most of the art that most people consume is art for entertainment's sake. I'm not saying you should, you know, you need to draw them into your world of pretension, I'm saying that there is a way of appealing to people to draw them into a communal experience that's not uh, condescending or patronizing to the audience, while at the same time does not allow the audience to merely use the art as a way of distracting themselves Mm -hmm. for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to stop distracting the audience, and we need to stop allowing for distracted audiences and really work to draw them in to uh, that meditative state again. It's good. Consider God. Like, consider these things and consider God. And um, not everybody's called to that same exact uh, no. thing, yeah. but uh, if, I'd say if you're an artist today, you can learn a good bit from existentialism. Maybe what not to do, but also understanding that there is that. Mm-hmm. That actually there is that... Uh, there is that sense of meaninglessness at the base of human existence, and that needs to be addressed. It, it shouldn't. We shouldn't just be ignoring it anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, next episode, what are we going to get into? Next episode, pop art. Pop art. Wham. <laughs> well, and also just in terms of pop culture as well. Pop culture and consumerism. Yeah, a lot of actually what Michael was just talking about. Right. Dive into. We're going to get into that more because it, I think it's. Really, we're moving more into present day. And there is a little bit of overlap between uh, modern art, late modern art, and existentialism, but I wanted to discuss some of those things. Um, Actually, there's one feature of existentialist art uh, that I think is important if you want to talk about it, which is minimalism. Oh, yeah. Um, Hmm. If you're wondering, you know, have I seen existentialist art? Visual art, it's kind of difficult to determine. Uh, It's a lot easier to determine from... Uh, from literature, whether or not you're looking at quote-unquote existentialist art. Uh, I think more 
you just need to recognize that after the World War II, basically, everything has been influenced by the basically the collective giving up on any collective attempt at getting truth and meaning. Mm. Um, and especially within the arts where people are just like, meaning is not even a thing right now. That's not mm-hmm. important. It's not important to communicate truth because there isn't one. Uh, that's what they think. And uh, But one of the things also that existentialist art has done, and you can see this in Hemingway and Camus, and you can see it in Giacometti. Is that his name? Giacometti. Giacometti. Ooh. Ooh. Um, is this removal of extraneous elements mm-hmm. and any extraneous elements at all. So getting down to uh, extremely simple and very structural approaches. Yeah. And so with... Hemingway, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily let my children read Hemingway, but they probably could. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably could read it and understand it. Uh, Steinbeck as well, um, Virginia Woolf. You read these various different uh, late modern and, and moving into postmodern authors, and there's more of an approach until, the, until most recently. There's more of this approach of minimalism. And um, so the piece we're going to finish with today is by John Cage. It's three easy pieces. And this piece uh, that Phil Hodges is going to be playing is the first of those three easy pieces. It's called Round. And you'll, in it, you'll, you'll hear uh, just the, the, the simplicity of it and um, the stripped down and absolutely minimal quality to it. Which is something that, again, I mean, you, you, they, they've given up a hope on there being this complicated and complex system that's going to make meaning of everything. And so they've gotten down to just what are the bones, what are the structures, what are the, what are the strokes that are the simplest strokes uh, useful for the communication of this idea. But also you'll see from this piece, there are moments in it and chords that are being created, even though they are very simple, um, that you wouldn't really hear in um, other from other music in other eras because it's just dissonant. A lot of them don't make a whole lot of sense when they come together. You're like, this doesn't like why? Why would you put those notes together? Um, and so, even in its simplicity, it still has a a commitment to the absurd and a commitment to dissonance. And I think you'll see that in a lot of modern art. If you look at, at late modern and existentialist art, you'll see this um, this simplicity mixed with this dissonance and this messiness. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are meant to convey that that deep-seated sense that there isn't really a, a structural meaning. Um, so anyway, we hope you enjoy the song. I have two other things uh, to tell you before we listen to this song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One of them is that we have a survey for our podcast listeners. And so um, I think it's pinned to the top of our Facebook page at Renew the Arts. And we would love it if you listen to this podcast and are a fan, or even if you are not a fan, if you are a, a, a severe adversary and hater of our podcast, we'd love it if you filled out our survey and let us know how we can improve. Let us know what we're doing that works. Let us know how we can serve you better in the podcast. Also, we have the mailbag episode that's coming up here in a couple of weeks. Um, We have just, this is episode seven of season three. So we have two more and then the mailbag. So 
We're going to tell you again, and we're going to be telling you this uh, every episode until the end. Please send us uh, questions. We already have a few questions that we're going to be addressing, but if you want to have your questions addressed, you need to go ahead and send them to us because if you send us send it to us uh, on the day <laughs> of, I, we're not going to have time to prepare um, an answer. I guess answer. we could email you back. Yeah, <laughs> we could just email you back later. That's true. That's true. But if you want it on the podcast, make sure to send in your questions. Email them, text me, call me, uh, send a, 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 a homing pigeon or whatever. <laughs> Um, is that a thing? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoy the song. This is uh, John Cage, Three Easy Pieces, Round. What you just heard was The Round from Three Easy Pieces by John Cage, written for piano, arranged for guitar. John Cage lived from 1912 to 1992.